This morning's reading from the Bible is taken from the book of Job. If you would like to follow along from a Bible that's on the shelf in front of you, you'll find it on page 253. And it's Job talking. He says, <clears throat> Job chapter 19, beginning at verse 20. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped by only the skin of my teeth. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another how my heart yearns within me. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Great, let's, um, let's pray together at the start. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we uh, continue this series looking at the human journey and as we come today to uh, think about this rather difficult, this very difficult subject of end of life, please would you uh, teach us from the Bible and help us too as we consider medical um, experience and practice. And Lord, we ask that it would uh, both prepare us and comfort us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as you'll know if you've been coming to church for the last few, uh, last few weeks that we've been going through this series called The Human Journey, so slightly different to our normal practice where we normally have a passage of the Bible and uh, look through that. Um, we're not doing that in this series, we're, we're relating the Bible and we're looking at the Bible and we're looking at medical um, practice and evidence and trying to see how we should live in these different areas. Um, last week, Nick helpfully helped us to uh, think about mental health. The week before, we thought about physical health. Um, and if you were here then, you remembered that we were encouraged both by medical understanding and by biblical truth uh, to look after our physical health in as much as we are able to, um, but recognizing all the same that we're aging and unless the Lord Jesus returns, then all of us one day will die. Many of us, of course, will be blessed to live well into our 80s. But whether life ends then or much sooner, sadly it will, or sadly it will for some, death is something that we've all got to face. Of course, in our 21st century, death is quite a taboo subject. But preparing for the end of our lives is really something that's quite sensible and an important thing to do. Over the years, I've looked after hundreds of people who've been dying, and I've often witnessed the effects of both good and bad preparation. There are lots of aspects of preparation, but there are two aspects of preparation which I'd like just quickly to think about and that are important for us. The first is preparing for life beyond this life, and the second is thinking about <clears throat> how we ourselves will face serious illness and death. 
So first of all, more briefly, we've got to prepare for life beyond this life. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This life isn't the end. We learn from God's Word, the Bible, that we have a choice in this life. And that choice will determine how we fare in the judgment and how we fare in eternity. And, you know, we may expect to live to our 80s, but there's no guarantee. So putting off that choice to follow the Lord Jesus and to accept his grace and forgiveness isn't a sensible option. But then secondly, we also, um, in preparation, it's helpful to prepare for the end of our life by thinking about some of the practical issues associated with getting unwell and approaching death. Leanne's going to help us in a few minutes to think practically from a medical point of view. But let's first of all just think about some advice from the Bible. Trust in the Lord Jesus for sure is going to be our reason for hope beyond death, but the Lord also promises to be with us through suffering and as we face death. So we've just sung, as Clive was saying to us, we've sung that, uh, those words that are based on Psalm uh, 23. And of course, that psalm is a very well-loved psalm. If you'd like to turn it up, it's on page 555 of the Bibles, and let me read it to you. So Psalm 23 on page 555. The Lord is my shepherd... I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a great description, isn't it? It's a great description of God as the shepherd caring for his flock, providing for daily needs, restoring our soul, but also walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death and ultimately inviting us to his banquet. It's wonderful, isn't it? The Lord Jesus promising to be with us even in the face of death. It's a great promise that we have to hold on to, though at times it won't feel like that. So let's just turn back in our Bibles to the previous psalm, to Psalm 22. There we see a completely different picture. Let me read verses 1 and 2 and 14 and 15. So Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night, and I'm not silent. And then verse 14, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Suffering and dying is really difficult. David, who also wrote this psalm, as well as the Psalm 23, clearly was in a very difficult and horrible situation, though 
perhaps not dying. But this psalm also, of course, points forward to Jesus, to his awful suffering as he died on the cross. And it's precisely because the Lord Jesus died in this terribly, indescribably terrible way as our saviour, that we can then go on in Psalm 23 to know him as our shepherd. It's no good thinking that we can know the Lord Jesus as a shepherd, this vague shepherd who's going to be with us. We only know that he's only our shepherd because he's first become our saviour. Margaret read to us from Job, and Job too is in a terrible situation. There in verse nine, in chapter 19 of Job, verse 20, my bones stick to my skin and my flesh. I'm nothing but skin and bones. But even in the midst of his terrible suffering, he could say, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Again, he knows that he has a savior, someone who's going to redeem him. So we have examples there of terrible suffering, people despairing almost, and yet trust and hope even in the midst of that terrible suffering. The Psalms, the Psalms are a great part of scripture. They're very honest expressions of feelings. To use the phrase of John Stott, all life is here. You have all sorts of things in the Psalms, people glad, people fed up, people angry, people crying, all sorts of things. And we may well struggle and cry out to God in despair at times. And that may be how we will react when faced with serious illness and death. So the Psalms can be very helpful. So for example, Psalm 6, verses 2 and 3, these may be words that we think, Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? It's okay to be like that, to cry out to God. But our prayer will be that if and when that time comes for us, then like David in another psalm, in Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15, that we could say, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Well, that's a very brief introduction to so much in Scripture that can help us as we contemplate the likelihood of serious illness followed by death. But Leanne's now going to help us to think through some practical medical issues. As Philip said, death and dying isn't something that we think about or talk about very much in our society. But as Christians, we are more aware of our mortality than most. We know that this life is short compared to the wonderful inheritance we have in heaven. This means that we are more equipped to face death than non-Christians. We know that the Lord is our shepherd and is with us at all times, including during our suffering. But even though we're certain of heaven, the process by which we will get there can still frighten us. We wonder and worry about what might happen and how we'll cope. So as we look together at end-of-life issues today, I hope that we'll be more informed about and therefore more confident in the medical expertise and care that is given to those facing the end of life. 
Now, I'm aware as we touch on these issues that they may well bring up emotions, fears and anxieties, whether for ourselves or for those that we love. They may also bring back memories of those we've lost in the past. If you find yourself affected and would like to talk to someone, then Philip and I will both be around at the end of the service. So firstly, we're going to look at the care offered to someone at the end of life and then discuss an important ethical issue relating to the end of life, which is euthanasia. So when doctors make a diagnosis, the first question to answer is, what's the best form of treatment? For many conditions, we can cure people. Advances in medicine mean that diseases that historically have been killers can now be cured, including some cancers. Surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy can often mean that treatment is curative and people go on many years later to die of something else. In other cases, it's not possible for us to cure the patient. We can't get rid of the underlying disease, but we can try to slow down the progression as much as possible and relieve symptoms. Now, this is known as active medical treatment. We're doing all we can to improve outcomes and treat symptoms, but we're not able to bring a complete cure. This is actually the case for lots of diseases like asthma, diabetes, chronic lung conditions, and many other chronic conditions. We can treat them, but we can't fully cure people. Now, over time, we may get to a stage where active medical treatment isn't working. In cancer treatment, this is usually when the primary tumour spreads to other parts of the body. We then move on to palliative treatment. So palliative treatment will not alter the underlying disease process, but it will aim to minimise the symptoms the patient's experiencing. We can often improve things, even if we can't cure them. We can use chemotherapy and radiotherapy with the intention of relieving symptoms rather than curing. For example, someone with a bone metastasis from a cancer may benefit from one session of radiotherapy to the painful area. Although it doesn't affect the overall progression of the cancer, it's really effective in relieving pain and improving quality of life. Now, when we can only offer palliative treatment, at some point in the future, the patient will die from their disease. In my GP training, I worked at a regional centre which looked after patients at all stages of cancer, and it was amazing to see the time taken to sensitively, commun sensitively communicate with patients and their families and to answer questions. When someone's faced with a terminal illness, it is devastating. People need time and space to take the diagnosis on board. Support from family and friends is invaluable. We might not wish to share the diagnosis with everyone, but having a few close friends who can come alongside us and share the burden, to be available to listen, to pray, or just to spend time with us is really important. And as a wider church family, we can pray and offer practical love and care through our small groups. Once the patient is entering their final days, then we move into end of life care. This is focused on symptom control. It's important to understand what this doesn't mean. End-of-life care doesn't mean that we stop looking after patients. End-of-life care involves a huge amount of nursing and medical expertise to keep the patient comfortable. We use many different drugs to combat symptoms such as pain, nausea, vomiting, breathlessness and agitation. And these are often given through a small needle placed just under the skin 
and attached to a pump which delivers a continuous dose of medicine. This means that we're able to treat symptoms even if the patient's too unwell to take tablets and we can also easily alter the dose as needed. End-of-life care also involves care and support for families and this often continues once the patient has passed away. It might happen in hospital, a hospice or in someone's home. Hospice care is excellent. Hospital provision is often more patchy depending on the availability of local palliative care services. I have seen care given to an incredibly high standard with patients well cared for and supported alongside their families to face what's ahead, to make plans for the time remaining and die peacefully. The vast majority of patients slowly fade, becoming drowsier and less responsive as they slip away peacefully. It's a privilege to be able to care for patients at the end of their life and to help them to have a good death. However, many in our society mean something quite different when they talk about good death. The term euthanasia actually means good death in Greek. There are those who think that we should have the right as individuals to choose the time and manner of our death and to be able to end our own lives, either on our own or with medical help. So a couple of definitions. Euthanasia is the intentional killing by act or omission of a person whose life is felt not to be worth living. Physician-assisted suicide is where a doctor helps a patient to end his or her own life. Life can be ended by a deliberate use of an injection or taking a lethal cocktail of drugs. Euthanasia is not the same as stopping active treatment or withdrawing inappropriate treatment in someone who's terminally ill. For example, if a patient's very close to death, doctors might decide not to treat a chest infection. This is not euthanasia. Euthanasia is actively deciding to end the life of a patient who may or may not be close to death. There are moves for euthanasia to become law in this country, and Philip's going to talk a little bit more about those in a minute. Firstly, I'd like to give some reasons why, from a medical point of view, um, that, that worries me. The first is that legalising euthanasia will profoundly change the doctor-patient relationship. All the doctors I know went into medicine because they wanted to help people. Patients know that their doctor is on their side, walking with them through their treatment journey. If we legalise euthanasia, then doctors will be changing sides, from those helping to those involved in ending life. That's bound to lead to value judgments being made about the merits of keeping someone alive versus offering euthanasia. It may be difficult to trust that your doctor really does have your best interests at heart. The second is that it's impossible to accurately predict the cause of an individual patient's illness. Those diagnosed with a terminal illness often, understandably, ask how much time they have left. We are able to give predictions based on clinical experience and statistics, but we can't be sure exactly how an individual patient is going to respond. If you've watched the film The Theory of Everything about the life of Stephen Hawking, you'll know that he has motor neurone disease and that he was given two years to live 52 years ago. Now, no one could have possibly predicted the cause of his illness. Now, he is an extreme example, but many of us here will know people who've responded to treatment in unexpected ways. If the law on euthanasia was changed, then doctors will be asked to give opinions about the likely length of time remaining 
the thing we are least sure about really and those judgments would be used to end lives this would also give doctors huge power to decide not only about the most appropriate treatments but whose life was worth continuing and who's not. The third reason is that legalising euthanasia will lead to a lack of skills and investment in palliative care. If euthanasia were to become widely available, then there would be no incentive to invest in good palliative care treatment. We already need more investment, not less, particularly to improve the care delivered to patients who die in hospital. In countries that have already legalised euthanasia, there is little or no provision. In a climate of limited resources, it may be deemed inefficient to care for people properly at the end of their lives when euthanasia would be much more cost-effective. The fourth reason is that euthanasia will lead to pressure on the sick and the vulnerable. Imagine being aware that you had a life-limiting illness that was costing the NHS thousands of pounds to treat. If euthanasia was available, I think that there would be a pressure to stop being a burden to the rest of society to die quietly and free up resources for others. Not everyone would feel this pressure, but those who would are likely to be the most vulnerable. We already see this attitude to some extent. I can think of many elderly patients who didn't seek help early enough for serious illnesses because they didn't want to bother anyone. The desire not to be a bother to society or to their families may lead to them feeling a pressure to consider ending their lives. The right to die may become their duty to die. Finally, euthanasia will cause a shift in society's attitude to death and to the dying patient. It will lead to a slippery slope where we devalue life. Those who draft legislation do so from the very best intentions. However, it's difficult to pass laws that have enough safeguards to prevent them from being abused. An example of this is the 1967 Abortion Act. Those who drafted it never dreamt that it would lead to the situation we have today, abortion on demand. I fear that legalising euthanasia would lead to the same lack of care and disregard for the sanctity of life at the other end of the spectrum. If euthanasia was available, then it's very likely it would be extended not just to those with terminal illnesses, but also to other chronic conditions such as dementia and other chronic illnesses. So, as a doctor, I fear euthanasia being legalised because it will affect the very centre of what it means to be a doctor, which is, as Hippocrates said, to cure a few, help some, and comfort always. And also because it will be open to abuse and lead to a slippery slope where life isn't valued and good end-of-life care might not be available. Thanks, Leanne. Well, we've heard there about some of the arguments <clears throat> against euthanasia, some of the effects that it would have, and there have been various attempts in uh, British parliaments to change the law. Just last month, members of the Scottish Parliament um, rejected the Assisted Suicide Scotland Bill by 86, 82 to 36 votes. In December 2014, the Welsh Assembly rejected a motion in support of assisted suicide. And now, as some of you may know, Westminster MP Rob Maris has tabled a private member's bill. His bill came top of the MP's ballot, so it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. It's going to be voted, the, the first reading, which is the papers being printed, happened last week, and MPs will be voting on his uh, bill on the 11th of September. 
It proposes legalizing assisted suicide by permitting doctors to prescribe lethal drugs to a terminally ill patient. So many in the um, pro-euthanasia lobby would try to argue that physician-assisted suicide is very different from voluntary euthanasia. <clears throat> Back in uh, October 2005, when the Lords were debating um, Lord Joffey's bill, Lord McColl said if physician-assisted suicide were legal, but voluntary euthanasia not, then giving a patient a tablet would be legal, but putting it on their tongue would not. Now, how ridiculous is that? There's really little difference in physician-assisted suicide between <clears throat> we're still talking about the intention to kill someone. So whatever the proponents of physician-assisted suicide may say, and no doubt they'll say that in the debate when it happens in a couple of months' time in Parliament, and <clears throat> I no doubt we'll be reading about it in the media and seeing it on TV and so on in the run-up to that, legalising assisted suicide for the terminally ill is a stepping stone to legalising euthanasia. If patients have a right to ask for a lethal prescription, why not for a lethal injection? particularly if they're unable to take the drugs or having taken them and then suffering uh, a lingering death. Imagine that, someone trying to kill themselves and then suffering this lingering death. Well, then the doctors will feel that they need to step in and help that person. As the Dutch have said, and in Holland where, sadly, <clears throat> euthanasia is legal, as they've said, thinking that you can legalise one without the other is a fantasy. <clears throat> Back in 2006, in a further debate, Lord Joffey was honest enough to admit that he saw his proposals as a first stage. So he saw that although he was proposing just physician-assisted suicide, he would expect it to go on further in due course. And some of the comments that you may read or hear in the media today are less honest, but they continue to muddle up people who want to die for all sorts of reasons, people who aren't terminally ill but are fed up with life or suffering or think that something may happen to them in the future, muddling that up with those who are genuinely terminally ill. So the whole field is very muddled and people aren't honest. Leanne referred to the slippery slope. We don't have time to go into it now, but experience in the Netherlands and Belgium shows how gradually the application of killing people is extended further and further. So in Holland now... Belgium, they've already passed it, that, they can, that children can have euthanasia. Holland now, um, there's pressure now to allow children under 12 also to have euthanasia. I'd encourage you to look at the uh, Care Not Killing website if you're able to. So it's important that we both pray and that we act again. It'd be good to write to our MPs and to ask them to attend the debate on the 11th of September. It's a Friday, so it's a day when MPs are often back in their constituencies. So in theory, there could be just a handful of people in the Commons, just those who want it to go through voting. So we need to vote and ask our MPs to go and to vote against the bill. And it's best to use general arguments, so like the ones that Leanne has just uh, outlined for us, that are accepted by many people. We don't have to use specifically Christian arguments, we can use general arguments that many people will accept who are not Christians. I spoke earlier um, about preparing for the end of life by thinking about some of the practical issues associated with getting unwell and approaching death. So with Leanne's help, we've looked at what might happen when we're seriously ill and towards the end of life. This little book from um, CMF, Facing Serious Illness is a very um, helpful, practical guide to some of the things we should think about and do. 
There's no time now for any detail, so I'd encourage you to get the book. I'm not sure if there are any left, but I'm sure Alison will order more and we can have them on the bookstall. So it's just three pounds, very useful book. And it's worth all of us looking at it, even if we think death is a long way off for us, because it, it asks questions like, what is, and gives the answers to, what is mental capacity? Will I be denied the right to make treatment decisions about my care? What happens if I lack capacity to make decisions? Is there any way I can influence what will happen to me if I should lose capacity in the future? It explains about health and welfare, lasting power of attorney, about advanced decision to refuse treatment, sometimes called a living will, and also about a note of wishes. And on also, there's a very helpful uh, list of questions to think through and discuss with um, our family, friends, church leaders, GP and hospital specialists when we are in the place of being seriously ill and possibly facing death. So a whole list of questions, but just a couple to, just to highlight as an example. So, you know, we may want, we need to ask ourselves when we're in that situation, are there important things I want to accomplish before I die? People to see, relationships to restore, sins to confess, matters to put in order. You know, we may need to think about where I'd like to be cared for before I die, where I'd like to be when I die, and lots of other useful questions to think about. So I'd encourage you to get that book, all of us. Much of how we think about um, approaching the end-of-life issues, so particularly when we thought about the, the physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia, but, and, and just generally the way we look after it is shared by people of different faiths or none. But as we conclude, let's just remember that our Christian faith does inform, does guide, and does help us. So the Bible, as we've thought, just as we thought briefly about euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, the Bible clearly prohibits the taking of innocent human life. But for us too, as we face our own death, we may know something of the dilemma that Paul expressed in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 to 24, Paul writes this, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body... This will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And that dilemma will often be very real, not only to the terminally ill person, but also to family and friends. But when so many around us want to be in control of every aspect of their life, even of their death, if we, if we're Christians, then we can rest in the knowledge that our lives are in God's hands. Do you remember Simeon? Simeon in the temple, having seen the infant Jesus, he knew, he knew when his time has come. So let me finish just by quoting his prayer in Luke 2, 29. This is what he prayed when he knew that his time had come. <clears throat> Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, that example of Simeon who knew uh, that his life was in your hands and his time has come, had come. 
please help us as we uh, think about this difficult issue of death, of serious illness and death and dying. Help us to trust in you. Help us to know you as our saviour so that we can know you as the shepherd who goes with us, even in the difficulty. And we pray too for our wider society, for our country. We pray that we may not go down the route of um, legalising laws that will be a great danger to the vulnerable and the weak in our society. We pray that you would give wisdom to our MPs and that they may vote wisely. And we ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.